The Great Scott Show. And as they head into the final furlong, all of the other radio stations and radio hosts are making a keen turn of speed by The Great Scott Show, the champion. With Scott Prather. Steal the show. On ESPN 1420 and ESPN1420.com. Scott Show coming at you on a Monday morning. Positive vibes only this morning, guys. Let's kick off the work week. Positive vibes. How you feeling? How you doing? What's up? Happy to have you with me. Got a great show for you this morning. Going to talk to Rage Cajun softball coach Jerry Glasgow. Their team, the Cajun softball team, has won 16 games in a row. He'll join me at 745. Rage Cajun baseball coach Matt Deggs. Baseball team's eight-game win streak ended on Sunday yesterday, but another series victory over the weekend to, um, you know, Connor Cook on Saturday was fantastic. Crazy game yesterday, but we'll talk to him at 815. And outside of that, we're going to get into uh, some recent beef between Dustin Poirier and Connor McGregor that impacts this community. Tell you about that. Zion Williamson. Nice father-son moment I had over the weekend. And, of course, a tradition unlike any other. The Masters. Your Masters recap from Augusta. Before I dig into all of my thoughts on the event, here it is. The Masters on Thursday and Friday and Saturday is so much about jockeying for position. If you're in the discussion come Sunday, though, it's not really about any position other than one. And on a day which greets us each year with a crackling anticipation about who will end the day in that top spot, this Augusta Sunday offered the additional promise of something which had never happened before. How many eyes were trained on Hideki Matsuyama? Not just along Augusta National's fairways, where the patrons had returned, but in a golf-mad place where no man had ever won a major championship, where no man had ever even entered the final round of a major with the lead. He first came here a decade ago, having won a tournament the Masters helped to create, the Asia-Pacific Amateur, and became the Masters Low Amateur. This day, there was a game challenge from a young man trying to author his own unusual tale. 17 months ago, Will Zalatoris had no playing status. Yet here, he continued a season of remarkable golf at a place no one would have ever predicted. Such a confident young man. If you're a rookie here, it's supposed to be a riddle. Miraculous in the morning after a late night hard. Only one man has won here in his first try in 42 years. Wow, this gets tough. But Zalatoris 
seem unaffected. Stroll in the park happy. Matsuyama, though, would give no ground. That was a huge save. 60 years ago, Gary Player became the first international golfer to win the Masters. Players from 11 different countries have known what this magic moment feels like. Never, though, one from Japan until today. In a country which will host the Olympics and golf this summer, Matsuyama just became all four Beatles rolled into one. And it capped off an emotional week of firsts, a week to remember firsts. People of color came after Lee Elder. Just as people from countries which have never had a Masters win will no doubt follow in Matsuyama's footsteps too. Thank you. It means so much to begin with. When it's never been done before, it means even more. That courtesy of the Masters, ESPN1420.com. So, uh, I, I, um, Matsuyama is a great story. To to think of the pressure that someone's going to feel at Augusta when they've got a lead, a sizable lead, on Sunday. A sizable lead heading into the back nine and the pressure that any golfer would just have on themselves. Then you have an entire country kind of resting on your shoulders and the pressure that comes along with that. I can't, I mean, I, I can't imagine. It's crazy. And he is a great story. And, uh, you know... I think a win for anybody that wears sunglasses on the back of their hat. Dude, had that the whole time. It's like, is this guy going to win the Masters? But the the moment that I was like, you know what? Hideki Matsuyama is actually, it is in one way relatable to me and others and the common man. He's 29 years old, but he is like extremely private and and you know it's you just heard the masters update now all four beetles wrapped into one in japan it's going to be hard for him to maintain that privacy now i mean he certainly got international world fame yesterday but there was a 77 minute weather delay on saturday and he said someone asked what he did during the delay and he said he just sat in his car in the parking lot and looked at his cell phone. It's like that right there. Okay. That 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 had to be the moment where if you had known that in the moment you're like, "Oh, this guy's going to win." He's not out there stretching, overthinking it, getting nervous. "Oh my god, what are you like?" Go surf the web for a little bit in my car. I mean, come on, you guys can all relate to that. Wait, it's going to be how long? The wait's going to be an hour? I could sit here now. I'm going to go in the pumps and go look at my phone for a little bit. Wait for this thing to end. Now, I, I, the, the, the Masters itself as a whole, I think, was missing the drama that you would hope you would get on a Sunday 
the drama of, oh, man, it's in it. Green Jackets up for grabs. Who's going to get it? There was maybe yesterday afternoon, like, I don't know, 30 seconds of, what, maybe, huh? It's like, oh, he, he's, did he get in the water? What happened? Oh, oh, nope, nope. Xander Scheffler, no, he's going to choke as well. So, nope, it's it's pretty much, even though Matsuyama only won by a stroke, if you watched, you knew that it was not really, it wasn't happening. There wasn't much drama there. And that's okay. You know, you want to you watch the Masters and get a, a nice afternoon, Sunday afternoon snooze for a little while and then wake up and catch the end. It was a, kind of, it was a tournament to do that for. Brooks Kepka played hurt, didn't make the cut. Dustin Johnson, the favorite, didn't make the cut. He had to wait around for a couple extra days to put the green jacket on Hideki. He's probably like, man, I just want to get out of here. I really got to st- I, I gotta, I gotta hang out here for a few days. Bryson DeChambeau is a tool. Had the poll up last week. Left it up on my profile for four days. Overwhelmingly cool or tool. You voted a tool, and he is. You know, the favorites, they weren't getting it done. Zalatoris, 24 years old. All the happy Gilmore jokes. You know, the, the, the happy Gilmore jokes about Zelatoris just reminded me of how old I'm getting. Because for those that didn't see any of the memes or weren't paying attention, everybody on, I guess it was around Saturday, they were like, oh, watch out, this young Zelatoris guy. Who, oh, who is he again? What's he? Oh, look at him on the leaderboard. Look at this. He looks like that. There's a caddy that Happy Gilmore has early in the movie. That's given to him, and he's just kind of this lanky, skinny-built kid with this wild blonde hair, and everybody immediately thought the same thing. Holy cow, Zelatoris looks like the guy that was Happy Gilmore's caddy. Before, you know, Happy Gilmore ended up getting his own caddy in the movie, which was a homeless guy that would bathe in the you know ponds on the golf course and had a much bigger role than the guy who looked like Zelatoris. But... When happy and Adam Sandler even sent out a tweet, you know, wishing him the best of luck, his old caddy. Zelatoris wasn't even born yet when Happy Gilmore came out. Wasn't even born yet. So go ahead and lean into it, man. But I'm old. It was cool to see him competing. Young American out of nowhere. That was cool. Patrick Reed out there. Playing the villain the only way he can. Patrick Reed was wearing what a CBD hat. He was wearing a hat for a CBD company. Come on, Patrick. We know your wife doesn't let you do that. We know she won't allow you to take any CBDs. Let's be real. Honestly, for the Masters, to me, if you don't have the drama on Sunday at your craving, you hope for a good story for the winner and. It's hard to not have a good story. I mean, if you're the guy, you know, Nance and all the journalists to cover the Masters, if you look hard enough, you can find a great story anywhere. But sometimes it's, sometimes you're having to kind of make chicken salad out of chicken poop. All right, how do I turn this into it? You didn't, you didn't really have to do that with Matsuyama. I mean, the story was there. It was ready to be told. First, you know, first golfer from an Asian country to ever win the Masters. First Japanese golfer to ever win the Masters. There was there was plenty to write about there. 
But I just love the green jacket ceremony. You know, in terms of best sports ceremonies, championship ceremonies, like the sports that I like the best aren't, they don't have the best championship ceremony. Like the Super Bowl, the Lombardi, it's okay. They they roll the Lombardi out. They give it to the owner. He gives it to the coach. They give it to a player. They all talk. But the ceremony itself isn't like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Ring ceremonies, they're they're not done they're not done until like the next year. They're more they're more or less like closing the book on a championship and opening the the, the book to the next season. That's what they are. I mean the best championship ceremonies are like the, the Stanley Cup and the Masters. And I like that in college basketball, they cut the nets and they do that in, in high. They, they, cutting the nets is fine, break out the ladder. But it's not the same. It, there's something about the tradition of the Stanley Cup championship ceremony and the Masters championship ceremony that's just a, a cut way above the rest. And and golf and hockey certainly are not my top sports. They're not. Ten, tennis's championship ceremonies in the majors. There, there, there's some reverence to it. They're cool, but they're not, no one's like, oh, I can't wait to see this. You're more or less just waiting to see what someone has to say. The runner-up, the champion, thanking the crowd. It's fine. There's nothing about it that's super special. Green jacket ceremony? Special. Stanley Cup championship? Special. Quarter after seven, it's the Great Scott Show. I'm Scott Prather, ESPN 1420, ESPN1420.com, and the ESPN 1420 app. If you're listening on the ESPN 1420 stream on the Listen Live player on your desktop or mobile device via our mobile app and in connected cars and on smart speakers, that is brought to you by Champagne's Market in the Oil Center. Champagne's going the extra mile. We got a lot more to get into. We're going to talk about the diamond sports, baseball and softball from the weekend. That's coming up later in the show. Had a nice father son moment over the weekend. Took my son to his first Pelicans game. It was a heck of a one to see the way Zion played. Zion's ridiculous. And up next. The latest beef between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. This one, though, ish. you can have beef where, okay, we're we're just trying to drum up some spark for our next fight this summer. Or, no, the beef this time, you're talking about impacting people's lives. You're talking about impacting people's lives that need help that live right here in this community. Tell you all about it next right here on ESPN 1420, ESPN1420.com, and the ESPN 1420 app. It's the Great Scott Show. Don't go anywhere. Get a candy out of that roof.
ESPN 1420, ESPN1420.com, and the ESPN 1420 app. I'm Scott Prather. Welcome back. Pelicans win their two games over the weekend, one in Cleveland last night, 116-109. Zion had 38 points. He was 16 of 22. Friday night, Pelicans beat a good team in Philly. 194, they topped the 76ers. Zion Williamson was scored 37 points. Was two assists shy of a triple-double. Scored 14 of his 37 in the fourth quarter. He was tremendous, man. He had 15 rebounds and eight assists. And right now, because last night was Zion's eighth 30. It was his eighth 30-plus point game this season. He's had more than that, but his eighth 30-point game where he didn't even make a field goal outside of the paint. That is more than the rest of the NBA combined. Combined. He's doing stuff, guys, that no one else is doing. And in his last seven games, he's averaging 33 points, eight boards, five assists, over 20 field goal attempts a game, shooting 62 field goal percentage. And he had a real bad game. He had a stinker in there. He had a 4-12 night against Brooklyn where he only scored 16 points. In his last seven games, averaging 33-8-5. Just tremendous stuff, man. Tremendous stuff. And I um, was there on Friday in the win over the 76ers. Took my son to the game. His first, he has been to some UL softball and baseball events. He's been to a few football games at Cajun Field. But this was his first NBA game, his first basketball game. And he's, uh, you know, he just, he knows who Zion is. He likes Zion. It was cool, man. My first born at a game, getting excited about a player, staying up late, getting a souvenir at the game. You know, when you see the excitement young kids have for sports, it can kind of take you back to that place when sports was just that as a kid. You know, Now, as an adult and being in this line of work, I view sports very differently than I did when I was five. Getting to see it, though, in my son's eyes, that was pretty awesome. And what a game to be at. One of the better games of the season in terms of Zion's performance and the Pelicans, one of their better wins of the season. It's great stuff. They have yeah, the Kings tonight. Second night of a road home back-to-back. Good luck. Might be tough. Pels are a three-and-a-half-point favorite. That game is set to tip off at the Smoothie King Center tonight at 8 o'clock. But Zion's just going off right now, man. It's just going off. When it comes to the fight game, sometimes you just log on to social media and you can see fighters going off on one another. And yes, it is all part of what makes the sport of MMA at the international level work. Promoting fights, trash talking, going at it. Dustin Poirier has been a lot more active at Dustin Poirier on Twitter than he was earlier in his career. More eyeballs on him, more attention on him after he knocked out Conor McGregor. Now they are set to fight for a third time this summer. And if you remember, McGregor made a promise 
to donate half a million dollars to the Good Fight Foundation. This was prior to their last fight. And this thing went on for a long period of time. I mean, Poirier did the interview rounds. McGregor said he was gonna he was gonna donate. He was gonna come through on the donation. When they started jarring back and forth on Twitter about trying to even have a fight, they they said they wanted to do it for charity. Then MMA stepped in, UFC stepped in. They're like, no, we'll host the fight. They eventually got it, and McGregor said he would follow through on it. Said he'd follow through on it. And Poirier's wife even, you know, was on video thanking McGregor for the donation he was going to make after their fight two months ago. You see the video of her walking in the locker room thanking him. The Good Fight Foundation, the charity in, in Poirier's dream is to have a fight gym that is open to the youth where they can go, a safe haven in a part of town where it's not as nice or safe as other parts of town. And he said, you know, in terms of GPA would be a determining factor, you know, improved grades can get you in. Basically wanting to give back, help young kids that are having trouble find an outlet, find a positive outlet, somewhere they can learn things and really make a big difference. And it's, you know, I mean, Poirier and his wife have done a lot of good stuff. In the early stages, a year ago, in the early stages of the pandemic, huge donation, donating tons of meals to Lafayette General and hospitals in the area and just making a difference. Let me tell you something, half a million dollars is huge when you're trying to get your charity and your dream of what it will look like and put it in action. Now, Poirier's knockout win and his current window of, I'm not going to use the word notoriety because he's not notorious, although McGregor is, but with the eyeballs on him right now, it, I'm sure it's done a lot of good, a lot of good, and his new hot sauce in terms of, you know, more popularity, you would hope that with that comes more donations. But again, half a million dollars. And half a million dollars to McGregor isn't as much as it is to Poirier or a lot of other people in the fight game because McGregor has made so much money. I remember Poirier before the fight was was visiting with Ariel Henley, and he was like, Yeah, you know, that that's that's just whiskey money. That's just that's liquor money for McGregor. He can handle it, and he has said consistently that he would do it. Well, last night on social media after McGregor made a prediction that he was going to knock out Poirier again, he said, that's a fun prediction. You also predicted a donation to my foundation, and you and your team stopped responding after the fight in January. See you soon, July 10th, paid in full. McGregor responded, a donation, not a debt. We've been awaiting the plans for the money that never came. I do with all my donations. Know where it's going dot for dot. Otherwise, it goes walking, as is the case with a lot of these foundations, sadly. You took the McGee over the belt, shows I was right. Poirier clapped back, 100% never a debt. You offered, we accepted, and like I said, your team never responded to our emails regarding the process of where the funds would be put to work. July 10th, you'll taste defeat yet again. And, of course, some folks got in the comments. 
Dustin confirmed they've already received the donation a while ago. His wife even thanked him. This is him trying to promote the fight somehow, to which Poirier responded, we thanked him because his team reached out fight week to initiate the process but ghosted us the past two months after the fight. My foundation has reached out three times since with no reply. We've moved past it. We'll be announcing our next goal soon. It's a big one. I mean, I get I get that you want storylines in the octagon, but half a million dollars that could go to help, that could go to charity and it not being paid, that shouldn't be a storyline. Okay? You can generate enough buzz without having to say, yeah, this guy with millions upon millions of dollars made a promise he was going to donate half a mil to a foundation that is, is going to make a big difference here in Lafayette and the greater community, and he just ghosted him and decided not to do it and claimed, well, I don't really know where the money's going. That's not a good storyline. Okay, That's hurting people's lives. That's impacting people. That's the wrong kind of storyline you want. It might make you want Poirier to knock him out again, but again, that's, that's not a good storyline. That's reality. That's real talk. Real lives. I don't like it. I don't like it. And I'm sure all the McGregor stands are all going to make excuses and, oh, come on, get over it, blah, 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 blah. And if he follows through and they donate it, I tip my cap. I have a lot of respect for McGregor for doing so, for following through, but right now to be ghosting him like that? Not cool, man. Not cool at all. 32 after the hour. Phone lines are open for you, 269-1077, 269-1077. You can email the show as well. Scott at ESPN1420.com is the email address, and you can tweet the show at ESPN1420. What's the best championship ceremony in sports? We put that question up on our uh, Facebook fan page this morning. Jeff Miller says Stanley Cup. Emails. Carl emails. He says, Scott, without question, it's the Stanley Cup. In my opinion, it's not even a question. Well, technically, it is a question. You just... You just... Don't think. I guess a better way to say it is you feel like there's there's no competition there. It is a Stanley Cup, but I think I think the green jacket one is right behind it. I do. Something about that green jacket and putting it on. I don't know, man. It's just something about the Masters. There's something about it. It's awesome. ESPN fourteen twenty and dot com. Um, but you can tweet the show as well at ESPN fourteen twenty. Uh, here's emails. This one comes to us from Jacob. It says, Scott, despite the fact that Zion's going off, why are the Pelicans five games below 500? Uh, because as a team, they don't play great defense. As a team, they have holes. As a team, they've hit the injury bug as of late. As a team, they don't have enough outside shooting. There was a moment in last night's game where Zion, you know, point Zion, if you will, put it on the floor, and four, four defenders for Cleveland all closed in on him. 
Didn't even worry about Bledsoe or James Johnson or anyone hitting a three from the outside. Now, at the time, I think the other two players on the floor were Billy Hernandez and maybe Kyra Lewis. Like, there weren't, there wasn't any kind of shooter on the floor that was any kind of a threat. They're not even worried about it. So, yeah. I mean, I, because Zion is playing at an insane level and doing amazing things doesn't necessarily mean the team's going to suddenly come together. This is a team of extremes. They could lose, you know, they, again, they can lose to Brooklyn by 28 and then, you know, two days later take on a really good Philadelphia team and go off and beat them. This is a team that has a winning record against teams that are eight games or more above 500 and a 500 record against teams with losing records. So they're a team of extremes. They still have some growing to do. I like, I tell you what, Jackson Hayes has been playing a lot better, man. Appreciate the email, Jacob. Thanks for listening. Let's head to the phone lines. Good morning. Welcome into the Great Scott Show. Hello. One second, Josh. I'm sorry. Let me turn you on here. And all right, I think we got you on. Good morning, dude. What's up? Why do you think that Isaiah Thomas played in the first game when he got picked up for the 10-day contract and like since then has been a ghost? Uh, it, I mean, you know, it, it has to do with players that are available. You know what I mean? Um, I think also, uh, you know, what do you do on defense? Where's the liability? What's the score of the game, the matchup, all of that stuff. I mean, you, you might not see him play anymore, honestly, um, because it's a 10 day contract and it might be up soon, especially with Lonzo ball coming back. Maybe he signs a second 10 day, but once Nikhil Alexander Walker comes back as well, then you probably won't see him more, but there's a reason Isaiah Thomas hadn't been in the league for a while. Yeah, I just—I was just curious. I didn't think he was gonna like show up and like completely change the face of the organization or anything. Like some people might have thought. I just—I just was con- confused because I thought he played pretty decent in the first game, and then I don't see him. And then there's a bunch of guys that I've never even heard of playing, you know, a lot of minutes, and he's on the bench. So I'm like, I, I guess I was confused by that. But the real reason why I called in was about the Dustin Connor thing. You know, a lot of people that I'm friends with that are big MMA fans, they're like, "We can't believe he's did this. I, I, this is so dis, so disrespectful, so wrong, so this, so that." And you know, at first I tried to think about, like, you know, what would have motivated it. And it, for me, the light bulb clicked, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe I'm just looking in too much. But I think Connor lost his juice before this last fight, and I think to get back to where he was as a fighter, he's more of a mental fighter, and he likes to mess people's heads. And he went into this fight against Dustin all respectful and quiet and calm and collective and like a normal human being. And he got, he got waxed. And I think that this to try to gas up Dustin and to gas up himself and to get into Dustin's head. I really believe that. I know it's low. I know that seems like a really jacked up thing to do. But for me, I feel like that's it because in everything else he's ever done, like in charity work or for other people, Connor has been a great person outside of the ring. So I feel like this is just his Has way. he? I mean, this is a guy that, that knocked out a guy in Ireland, an old man, just because he wouldn't take a sip of his, what, his scotch. So I don't know that I'd agree with no, you, no, but no, he's no, been no, a great person. No, 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 no. Not a great person in his everyday life. I'm saying in all of his, like, philanthropy. He's given lots of money. He's done a lot of things for poor people, especially in his country. He's done a lot of stuff in that aspect. No, this dude has hit people and wrecked buses and done crazy crap. I guess what I'm saying is I really feel like this was his way 
of trying to get under Dustin's skin and get in Dustin's head. Because in the first fight, he got under Dustin, in Dustin's head bad. And, like, Dustin admitted that. Yeah, but that was also, what, fight. like seven years ago? I mean, it... If you got if you have to if you have to withhold half a million dollars to it's going to make a real difference in in people's lives to to get up for a fight then you're doing it wrong. Oh, listen, I don't disagree. I just really believe this dude is a head case because every time he's ever beat a big fighter, if you notice, he always tries to get in their head and he always says the most jacked up stuff and he always goes below the belt and does all this stuff to drum up attention, but also to just be him and get in their head. And he didn't do it in the last fight against Dustin, and he got dominated. And I really believe that he's being a scumbag to get motive to get Dustin, get in Dustin's head. Even more importantly, to get Dustin off of his game and to get Dustin all amped up and not thinking straight. That's just the way I look at it because there's no other logical reason for him to do this. So. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm grasping at straws, but I'll hang up and listen, man. Appreciate it. Thirty nine after the hour. You might not be wrong. I mean, you might you might it might be it, but it's still wrong. And I know you agree with that. ESPN fourteen twenty and dot com. And in in response to your first question, I think Isaiah Thomas played in loss against Atlanta and Brooklyn because, again, availability. Kyra Lewis wasn't available. Naw's out. Lonzo Ball's out. So he played 25 minutes in a loss to Atlanta, what, I think 19 or 20, and the, the awful loss to the Nets. And, you know, they had Kyra Lewis back for the last two games, so he's coming off the bench. He's getting those minutes, and Thomas didn't play it. Thomas is only going to play if a lot of guys are getting hurt. And, by the way, the two games he didn't play in, they won. 40 after the hour. Appreciate the call, Josh. Thanks for tuning in, man. It's good to hear from you this morning. Up next, going to begin our coach's interview portion of the Monday Great Scott Show. Each Monday during the seasons, we visit with the Rage Cajun coaches and Cajun softball. I how big how big was yesterday's two wins against Troy? I feel like. It was the difference in winning the Sun Belt this year. That's how big it was. If they win today, they'll have a two-game lead over both Troy and Texas State. Bobcats got swept by South Alabama, but the pitching is working. This daunting road trip continues for them. They've got one more game today at one against Troy. How are they feeling? How tired are they? How ready are they for today's game? Raging Cajun softball coach for the 14th ranked Raging Cajuns. Jerry Glasgow joins me next right here on The Great Scott Show. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into the great Scott show, the great sports callers open think tank. Joining me now, the head coach of the 14th ranked Ragin' Cajun softball team, Jerry Glasgow, the Cajun softball team left on April the 1st for a road trip to Atlanta. Here we are April the 12th. They are still um, got a 10 game road trip that ends today at one o'clock against Troy. And, uh, Jerry, my first question to you with all this travel and all wins, by the way, on this road trip, 
How tired are you? How tired is the team right now? Uh, you know, I, I think we're fine. I think, obviously, you know, anytime you travel and you're staying in hotels and sleeping in different beds, you know, it's there's a <clears throat> there's a lot of fatigue there, a lot of ugly there. But when you're winning, <laughs> you know, when you're winning, it, it, that covers up a lot of that, you know. Like my old high school coach used to say, uh, hitting and winning is like blonde hair on a woman. It'll cover up a lot of ugly. <laughs> and when you're winning, when you're winning, you tend to you tend to gain some energy and some enthusiasm from that, and um, cover up a lot of the you know the the road weariness, so to speak. Well, Jerry, the the pitching for you guys, as you say it all the time, right, the biggest key is the pitching, and it's still really good. Um, you know, Summer Ellison, Kendra Lamb, it just they continue to get the job done, and while the injuries have piled up for you guys, and that's been unfortunate, the pitching has kind of continued to fuel you guys, and, and it seems like there's a number of reasons you guys have won 16 in a row, but it's it's hard not to look to pitching at, at the top of that list in regards to the biggest reason. Is that fair? Well, pitching was outstanding yesterday. I, you know, there's a couple – they made a couple of big hits where, you know, Kendra Lamb in the first inning, they got one hitter red hot. They got a really good four hole. So we went 2-0 and on her. Said, okay, let's just put her on first. We had a runner on second. I didn't want to get down one nothing. I want to keep it. You know, I want to. I was expecting that game. We might need to win it one nothing. And and we had the we had the five hole a freshman that we wanted. We threw rise ball in, rise ball in, and she missed both balls by three inches. You know, and so we go waste out, waste pitch out, double outside curveball, just a waste pitch. Same thing we practice every day, and. And it it just didn't get out there, you know. It just hung over the plate, and she hit it over the left field fence. So we're down 3-0. <clears throat> that one pitch, though, other than that one pitch, Kendra Lamb was phenomenal, like really phenomenal. And if you if you don't understand, you know, if you don't know what the pitch call was and don't know what happened in that situation, it looks so funny, you know. But she shut down for the next five innings. You zero zero zero. We got the game. You know we're up in the game eight to three, and we had eight and three, one out, eight and nine holes up, and she's got two pinch hitters on deck, two freshmen. One's one for six, one's one for fifteen for the year. <laughs> you know, and I put uh, I put a fifth year senior in, and a fourth year senior Casey Dixon in, and you know she just wasn't ready. Maybe I didn't give her time to get warmed up. I don't know. Um, doesn't matter at that point, but I think that the score eight to seven, we let them come back there eight to seven. I hate that because you give them a little momentum going into game three. <clears throat> On the other hand, that's just the kind of thing we got to know. Like we got to learn those lessons. If we if it was because we weren't warm in the bullpen, then you know we can fix that. Um, if it's because we're not good enough and we can't handle pressure, then we got to know that too. You know we we got to know because as we go down the stretch, we got to know. Who can get people out and who can who can, you know, shut people down and we're trying to figure that out in some ways and it was a great you know, we had the game under in hand, eight to three. I wasn't I, there was never a point I was worried about it. Um there was a point when it was, you know, eight to seven and you still gotta get an out. There's a point where I thought, Ooh, 
I'm going to really look stupid for putting everybody in here. I was wanting to play everybody, too. You know, we let everybody mm-hmm. bat in the seventh inning. I uh, felt like eight runs was enough to win it. <clears throat> and, you know, we let everybody get a bat. We're trying to build some team chemistry, let everybody play, let everybody do their thing. And, you know, I really wanted I wanted to get as many pitchers in as we could. I'm trying to figure out ways, you know, that we can use a pitcher without, you know, without hurting another pitcher. Um and it's all tricky, but it, it'll come together. And it, I think what it shows you, though, is that, like, with, you know, Mayu at short looks so good right now. She looks really good. But Torres is looking really good at, at second base. And now she's hitting the ball like we expect her to hit the ball on, on opening day of season. Alderink is batting 560 over the last uh, five games and 500 over the last 10. And Tally's hitting – an amazing 660 over the last 10 games, like just really good. And so there's so many good things happening on this road trip, and it's uh, it's exciting. Now, we haven't even talked about Summer Ellison. She come out, she really threw a gym yesterday. You know, she, she's got the right pitch. She matches up with Troy, I think, better than any pitcher on our staff because they she has one pitch that they just cannot hit as a ball club. And, and, uh, it was working yesterday, and and it was she was locating it well. She just got easy outs. I mean, if you look at those two games, Justy, I don't think we had an error in either game. I think that's three games in a row we've made without an error. Now, when you think about who all we got playing and all the movement we've done, you know, even Rawls not catching for a couple of weeks while she was hurt. Now she's back there behind the plate, and then you got you know a backup at shortstop and. Uh, all over. You got a third baseman that was playing second base her whole career and just moved there a couple weeks ago. You got a shortstop playing second base that's not played second base in years. Um, you got your first baseman out, and you got Justice Mills in there now, uh, who earlier in the year we didn't even think would be able to play defense because of her knees. You think about all that, and they played three games in a row right here down the stretch without making an error. Um, so. I'm elated with where we're at on this road trip. When you compare to where we were, you know, we start, we start out the season 15 and six, and then whatever we've won, 10, 11 in a row, 12 in a row, I don't even know what it is now, but a lot of games in a row we're winning, but we're starting to play better and we're finding a way. We're hitting 379 as a team over the last 10, 10 games, and a lot of extra base hits are, are we've got our um, slugging percentage up over 500. We've got our on base percentage up at 400. So you know your team, our, your team OPS is over 900. 900 is a sign of a really good hitter. So um, a lot of good things, and I'm really proud of the ball club for just fighting through this season. Not just this road trip, but I'm just proud of the way they're fighting through the whole season. Coach Jerry Glasgow, our guest, ESPN 1420. You were talking about the hitting and how good it's been yesterday. You know, ten hits in one game, eight in another. Troy is a team that I think were what their team ERA was 1.52. You know, they were a team that, you know, didn't have a lot of errors. I mean, it was, it was the, it wasn't just a hitting coach, but considering the conference standings, how Troy was playing, the way that they've pitched this season, I mean, just across the board, yesterday felt to me like such a big moment in the season. Not just, not just two games against a good opponent, but, in terms of the overall Sunbelt Conference and 
how you guys hit against that pitching. It it felt like a really big moment to me. I think one will maybe look back on in a few weeks as just a, a really big, really, really big Sunday for Rage Cajun softball in Troy, Alabama yesterday. Yeah, it's a big Monday too because Johnson will come back after today. Now she's one of the top pitchers in the country. I talked to two SEC coaches that have played them earlier this year, and both of them said she's one of the best five pitchers they'd seen the whole year. Um, she's very good. Um, and I, I was proud of the way our kids hit her. We hit her really hard the last time we played her. Uh, you know, I, I think we the preparation was just like it was preparing for Brittany Barnhill at Florida. Just You know, you just got to be ready for the high, hard heat. And understand it's got upspin, so you got to get your barrels on top of the ball. And I thought our kids adjusted as the game went on. We we started out we were popping the ball up a little bit. She she was averaging like twelve strikeouts a game. I think she was leading the nation in strikeouts or second in the nation in strikeouts, and we had four. Uh, I thought that was really good. And 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 uh, in fact, I think she only had two strikeouts. Um, I I. I I thought we did handle her really well, and we got to come back out today and do it again, or it doesn't mean anything. I think it's just we 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 want to accept that challenge one more time today. And man, we're lucky this year. We got some great pitchers in the. This is the best the Sun Belt's ever been, um, in history, I guess. Because in RPI, you look this morning. I think we're 24, and if I read it right, um, Troy's 32. Texas State is in there about 41. And uh, who am I leaving out? South Al is 42. So we got four teams, I think, in the top 42 teams in the country. That's great for our conference. And in this competition where you really have to get up, you know, our preparation the last two days for Troy was just like we was in a regional or super regional. Um, we used the same format that, that we did in the SEC, getting ready for regional, super regional. And I thought we'd come into the series prepared. Uh, I was able to watch a ton of film on their hitters. I think at any one time we need to get one of them out. We got a pitch to get them out. And then while while we got those big leads, the beauty of that is we can start, you know, we can throw pitches that we don't know. We we, you know, I know there's I know a certain way to get each one out because I can watch the film from the Alabama game or from the Auburn game. But then you want to expand that. You don't want to be stuck to just one location. So you move over. We get a big lead like we did yesterday. You're able to move over to another location. Can they hit this pitch? Yeah, they hit that. It's okay, we can't go back there. Let's try this. You know, let's go low in or let's go low out. Let's go up out. Let's go up in. And, and you know, you get that all – all that information you get is going to help us, hopefully, when we get to the conference tournament. So I thought it was a real credit to our ball club. We were able to get a huge lead. We let all kinds of – play. I think we played our whole bench in both games. Um, and uh, – Fun to see, like, every player get a, a chance to help our team or contribute to the win. And, and you can't do that if it's one to nothing, obviously. But when you get out there and your team scoring four or five runs or even eight runs, then you're able to do a lot of things that really are fun and rewarding as a ball club. And that helps team chemistry and brings together, and we've been doing that on the streak. Louisiana Rage Cajun softball coach Jerry Glasgow, our guest. I'm Scott Prather. It's ESPN 1420.com. Today, 1 o'clock first pitch, 1245 pregame. Ian Ozan, Bobby Navarre have the call for you right here on ESPN 1420.com, powered by Learfield College. We've got it for you. And, um, and you know, Jerry, you mentioned a big game today. Obviously, 
you got a chance to take a two-game lead overall atop the Sunbelt Conference standings with a win today. You said the preparation yesterday was like preparing for a regional. It, it just feels like on this road trip and, and, and then yesterday and, and hopefully again today, the moment and what's on the line here is is not lost on any of your team. They've really stepped up to the plate. How much do you guys talk about how big a particular game might be in regards to standings, what have you, or how much of it is unspoken and everybody kind of just knows what's on hand? Mm, I think it's just you don't have to talk a lot about it. I mean, right now you got to take one game at a time. And it's right, right now we're just getting taking each team that we're going to a competition one game at a time and then just trying to find out how to make each individual player better. You know, like some players – having to work on the rise ball. Some players are having to work on the drop ball. Some players working on their lower half, getting getting you know, getting their lower half uh going and others are worrying about not dropping their hands and then on defense one's worrying about, you know, attacking the ball and charging the ball and others worrying about her throws and you just got different things that each player's zoned in on but but you know, you can't look down the road. You gotta stay right in the moment and and I think that's what we're doing pretty well right now, and we want to stay right there. When I talked to you last week, uh, you had not gotten the, the news yet that Alyssa Dalton was going to need surgery. I know Frankie Izzard suffered a, a very unfortunate injury. Certainly thoughts and prayers go out to her. But overall, Coach, I have to ask you each week, but uh, overall team health right now for you guys, where you guys stand? Yeah, I think we're okay. Yeah, you know, I felt bad about that. I, I never will ever say anything to mislead the fan base. Um, because I, I value our fans and I value their participation in our program and their and, and at that time we we had X-rayed Dalton the week before and it was negative and she played with really intense pain that weekend and couldn't close her glove and and so you know it was day to day and then literally maybe an hour after we got off the radio I uh, got a call from the trainer and said hey I just re-X-rayed her hand it's broke. Um, so she's going to be out for a few weeks or, you know, and hopefully we get her back towards the end of the season, but who knows? Um, it's a very narrow window. You know, there's not going to be, <laughs> she's either going to barely, barely, barely get back or, or she won't, but that's what happened on that. And I, I felt bad, you know, cause I, I sounded like I was trying to be deceptive and I, I definitely wasn't. I just knew information come in and had no idea that they were, I didn't even know they were going to re-x-ray it, but anyway, that's what happened. As far as this weekend, I, you know, I think we're okay. You know, we're, 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 you know, we had a lot of slides yesterday. Anytime you're seeing kids sliding, we had some people diving for outfield balls. We had a couple kids running defenses, catching pop-ups. So you never know. I mean, as far as a lot of times the, the girls don't even say anything for right at the moment. And then the next day they say, Hey, this really hurt. And that's what happened. You know, like I didn't realize Dalton had gotten hurt sliding in and uh, sliding. She didn't say a word. She just played through it, you know, and they're tough. And um, that's as far as I know, though, I think we're coming through this uh, road trip, you know, without any further damage. The loss of Frankie is just huge to our program because she's she was really becoming a team leader, an inspirational leader. Uh, I think the injury, she will become even more so, you know, Um I know our kids are taking it really hard to see her, and you know that was a lot of pain. It's a really intense um, situation to her injury, 
and she's handled it like a champion. She's a tough, tough, tough kid. And um, and then to see somebody come in and battle the way she battled and where she started in September and where she was last week at the time of her injury was very inspiring and then even more frustrating to see it, you know, be hampered or set back by by a, a, a severe injury. But, um, wow, that's a, we're talking about a special young lady right there that has just captured the hearts of all of our team and teammates and our coaching staff. And um, I, it'll be fun to watch her and see what she does. And whatever it is, it's going to be special. That's just how she is. Louisiana softball coach Jerry Glasgow. On a personal note, Jerry, I, for the record, I, I, don't, I can't speak for the fans, but I, I did not think that when I got the news about Dalton on Monday that, you were trying to be deceptive in any way. I mean, I've, I think I've talked to you enough, and I think the fans have heard you enough over the last few years to know how transparent you are. I mean, I've I've interviewed enough coaches over the last twenty years to know the ones that aren't going to give you much, and the and the ones that you know are an open book. And and you're definitely on the latter side of things. Um, my final question to you, I guess, is: Have you been through a season as an assistant coach in your your decades coaching softball that have had this many injuries to a team you were a part of? No, you know, I think that we've had more injuries this year than I had than we've had in twelve years. You know, it's been a bad year. It's uh, absolutely. I, I was saying we've had more than this year than we had in the first three years I was there. And and you know, you think about that. You've had well, Brittany Holland two ACLs, and um, so we had a couple bad injuries, but we've had more this year. You know, we've had an ACL and we've had, uh, you know, uh, hurt legs and hurt shoulders and hurt hands and uh, just so many things, hurt backs, stomach uh, stomach situations that cost a kid two weeks, concussions twice that cost two players two weeks. We've had, a, we've had an enormous amount of, uh, you know, injury. And... And when I think back, like, you know, maybe it's just because it was a long time ago, but I don't remember in six years at Georgia, I don't remember over one or two big injuries. That, um, I don't remember any at three years at A&M. So I think it's just, it's a, that's how things go. Things are cyclical like that. The credit to the girls is that they just haven't allowed us to, they have not allowed us to, to sit down and, you know, everybody wants to play. Everybody wants to contribute. We got a lot of talent, deep, deep, deep talent. I said that all fall. You know, I said that in the spring. It didn't look like it. It didn't look like it the first, you know, 21 games of the season. It didn't look like we had a lot of talent. And then all of a sudden now without, you know, you're, you've got a the preseason conference player of the year is not, and you just beat the, you, know, you just beat the, the, the best team in the conference, you know, according to the polls or whatever. And, um, without her on the field, and you know, Rain O'Neill is, in my opinion, the best outfielder in the conference, and along with Sierra Bryant and Kendall Talley right now. But I mean, we got we got three three outfielders. One of them not here. That you know, they're good. <laughs> they're really good. And so, I feel like it's the adversity's made us better. It's given us some strength. It's given us some resiliency. It's given us toughness and character, and as long as we, as long as we just keep demanding the very, very best out of ourselves, and uh, it's going to end up being a positive. 
Got some business uh, to tend to today, Coach. We appreciate you taking the time. 1 o'clock first pitch, 1245 pregame. You can hear it here on ESPN 1420 via Learfield IMG College. The Cajuns looking to sweep Troy and extend their winning streak to 17 straight, continuing to overcome those injuries that we've been talking about. I always appreciate you taking the time, Jerry. And uh, after the game today, safe travels back home. I know you guys are ready to uh, to get back into Acadiana and host some games at Lamson Park in, in front of, albeit on a limited basis, but in front of your own fan base. Yeah, we got a big game there tomorrow night. Uh, Southeastern Louisiana's really well-coached team, and they're playing really, really well right now. You look, they uh, they took Troy to the wire uh, a couple games earlier this year, so you know we'll come in and it'll be fun to get back on the field tomorrow night in front of uh, in front of our fans and and on our home turf. So we're looking forward to that. Thanks so much, Jerry. All the best, and we'll talk to you again on Monday. All right, thank you. That is Raging Cajun softball coach Jerry Glasgow. We'll go from one diamond sport to the other. Louisiana Raging Cajun baseball won the series this weekend against Arkansas State. Lost yesterday in a, a wild game. But uh, Connor Cook's performance on Saturday, Friday night win, long win streak before yesterday's game. We're going to dig into all of it with head coach Matt Deggs when we come back after this. This is the Great Scott Show on ESPN 1420, KPEL Lafayette. We'll be right back right after this. into the Gray Scott Show. Stepping up to the plate now on your Monday morning menu here on the program as he does each week. Rage Occasion Head Baseball Coach Matt Deggs. Matt, good morning, man. How are you? Morning, Scotty. Got the theme music going, huh? Every time now, man. That's your walk-up music. <laughs> Unless you tell me otherwise, that's the walk-up music. Oh, I love it. Good, man. I imagine you've probably listened to that in the morning much earlier than 8.15 before. I feel like sometimes you probably wake up at like 5 and that's just blaring. On game day, no, anyway. Quite, quite right. Bang your head. Oh, okay. Quite, well, we might have to add that one into the catalog <laughs> at some point. Um, bang your head. Man, I was um, I was listening to, uh, to Jay and Top yesterday. Um, the, you know, I want to cover a number of games from the past week, but have you have you been a part of a game where your team hit seven home runs and you didn't come away with the victory? Probably not. I was telling them yesterday I can't remember all of them, but we've definitely hit seven before. You know, I don't know about not coming away with a victory. I'm probably not. Yeah, I mean, the last time Louisiana had seven in a contest, uh, that you were you were on the staff. It was back in March of 2014. So. Just a lot of long balls yesterday, but when it comes to a game like yesterday, overall, is it more of an anomaly? Is it just one of those things where it's like, you know what, like how much do you take away from a game like yesterday? Well, that's the that's a beautiful part about our game is 
just when you think you've seen everything, you probably haven't. And that's why it's so addicting, right? And, you know, you can hit seven home runs in a game and still lose. You can, you know, I remember in 14, we got one hit and one. And that was on a Suge Gerard push bump. Uh, so it's just crazy, man. And have we ever hit seven home runs in a game at our field? I that that's you know what let's get Wyman on that I'm gonna text him that today I'll give him a little I'm sure you I started don't thinking about that yeah it was uh, as long as you've done no, this coach crazy as long as you've coached baseball the fact that you still see things that you've never seen before is just you, it, anything could happen on game day well what was <clears throat> what was nuts was have you ever seen a three run deficit overcome in one inning. On four different home runs. No, four different home. I, I get it if you hit a grand slam, but uh, or a couple of two run jacks, but four home runs by four different people. That was nuts. It was. Uh, it was again unlike any game I had listened to or seen or followed. Um, well, at that point, I thought the game was over. <laughs> when, when we go four, was it? What we go up four three? Four three. Yeah. The way we've pitched all year, I thought the game was over because I knew they couldn't stop us, and just didn't work out that way. It was a, this team's entertaining, though they're fun to watch, and uh, we're going to keep getting better, man. Well, prior to that, when you guys had won, uh, I think eight in a row, and or um, and start. Let's start with um, the win last week at Nichols because the last since the last time we talked, uh, we hadn't had it. We saw Chipper Menard then. We saw him again. Uh, yesterday, but a three-two win against the Nichols team that is just—I—I I, I describe them as a scrappy bunch. You know, I think they're yeah. around five hundred, but they—they they don't make anything easy. Yeah, they're like uh, they're like the Diaz guy to Conor McGregor, man. They just—they just won't go away, right? And it's nothing easy. It's—it's it's like a trip to the dentist, and you got to go, but you know it's going to hurt. And we're fortunate to beat them twice. I'll tell you that. Friday, Spencer Arigetti, Um Again, I'll say what I always say: even when he's off, he's still great. And you know, not his best outing of the year, but you guys still take care of business, ten to three. I thought he pitched well, but by his own standards, maybe folks look at him a little differently when you you've got all American type talent, but. A 10-3 victory on Friday was a good way to, to begin that series the way that one unfolded, right? No doubt. And he has escapability, right? And so does Cookie and a lot of guys on our staff. And what you saw yesterday was something that we weren't used to is throughout this whole streak and really all year, for the most part, we've escaped and – we were on the verge of escaping several times and we compounded that with, you know, an error or, or, you know, a walk. Uh, but generally we've escaped jams and, you know, Christie's out of that inning right there. It's a, you know, Borgie makes that play 99 out of a hundred times. And so it just, it caught up with us. Connor Cook on Saturday, one of the better performances you'll see all year. And it looked like, uh, I think it was the Arkansas State hitting coach mentioned 
that 52 pitches uh, Cook threw up in the count, and 41 of those were off speed. I mean, when a guy's feeling it and the other team kind of knows what's coming, but they still can't do it, is that is that when a guy's ultimately just in the zone? Well, not just that, but it speaks to his stuff. And, uh, you know, his stuff all the way across the board. And so at this level, when you're dealing with amateur hitters and you've got plus stuff, and, and like you said, you're in the zone, uh, and then not only in the zone, but you have command, uh, it's going to be a long day for whoever at this level. ESPN fourteen twenty and dot com. What what did you uh, did you did, what did you guys say to him? What did the team say to him in the clubhouse after that one? Which one, Connor Cookies? Cook. Yeah. Uh, well, we have so we after every practice or game, we've got uh, necklace that we reward to the nastiest pitcher of the day, the nastiest hitter of the day, the nastiest overall wolf of the day. And just to sum it up, for the first time ever, he won nastiest pitcher, nastiest overall. And the hitter said, what the heck, nastiest hitter of the day, too. He won all of them. So he was he was wearing all three of them. Well, are these necklaces made of, like, claws and blood? What do you describe them to us? Yeah, yeah they're, pretty, they're pretty crude. I'll just leave it at that. All right, and he was wearing all three of them. It was uh, it was a it was a heck of a performance, man. And um, you know, just, if you win the hitter, if you win nastiest hitter, and you don't have an at bat, that probably speaks to to how well you did, how nasty you did. Yeah, it was uh, a way of putting it. Um, and so it looks like you know, is it is it fair to say that that Saturday starter is now is now set, or is that still up in the air? Uh, you know, he's looking pretty good, isn't he? I mean, you think we ought to go with him? I, you know what, Coach, you you get paid to to make those decisions. I'm just asking to, to make sure. Um, Honestly, the way I've always approached conference and and winning conferences, and we've had a lot of success doing it, is you do whatever it takes to win the game you're in, and uh, you know. But I think Spence and Cook have obviously with Spence, and and no doubt with Cook at this point. Uh, have solidified themselves as a, the first two guys to go out. ESPN fourteen twenty and dot com. It's the great Scott show. I'm Scott Pree, the Rage Cajun baseball coach, Matt Deggs, our guest. I asked you last Monday if um, you know if you felt great, and I use the word great about moving Connor Kemple into the leadoff spot, and you, uh, I, I wouldn't say it was a joke, but you kind of laughed and just read off the stats. Now you got another four games in there, and since moving him to leadoff. In that first game against ULM, I mean, just from I think he's batting three thirty three. He's drawn four walks. I mean, he's just a guy that more times than not he's going to get on base. How much has that done for the rest of your your batting lineup? Whenever Kimple's since moving Kimple to the leadoff spot, what's that done for the rest of the lineup? Well, just you know, he's he's done an incredible job because he sees so many pitches and he's. One thing about Kemp is he's not afraid to hit with a strike or two strikes. And if you look at his numbers, his ABs actually, or his average actually goes up uh, the deeper he goes. And he's been able to get us off to great starts uh, in doing that, even with an out. You know, uh, he's able to see, come back, give a report. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really helped solidify the whole lineup. He had an 11 pitch double. 
uh, in this series. Obviously, a huge home run the other way. Uh, and then it is extremely difficult to get five hits in a game, and uh, he, he was able to do that yesterday. Tyler Robertson, uh, is he kind of cemented himself in that three spot in the three hole? I, I like the way the lineup functions together, gotcha. and we call it, you know, surrounding and taking down. And, and in order to surround that, that Buffalo and take it down, everybody's got a job duty function, and you've got to be able to work together. And just that order, the way it sets up right now, uh, they just move and function extremely well. Coming up this Friday against South Alabama will be just about two months into the season. Do you feel like the offensive identity is closer to what you and the staff had had been working for uh, at this point in the season? Do you feel like it's close, or do you still feel like the, the – I know that there's not a metaphorical finish line, so to speak, but compared to two months ago, uh, you know, compare that to right now for the offensive identity of this club – are they a lot closer in your mind to where you want them to be and hope that they would be? Well, no doubt about it, but they're going to keep getting better. And I've said it, you know, since day one, And when it heats up around here, literally when it heats up and it gets summery, it's going to get a lot of fun because balls start to fly. We can run, we can execute, we can do a lot of different things. But that question you're not going to ever be able to answer because of the explosiveness of these guys and, and, uh, and several of them, their best baseball is going to be when they're 25, 26, 27, 28 years old. Uh, you know, TR is going to play this game for a long time. Ben Fitzgerald, imagine how well he's going to hit when he's 25. Uh, Bobby Lede, Connor Kemple, like there's a lot of kids that are just going to keep getting better and better and better. So that's what I would expect throughout this season. And, and you know, if we get some of them back next year, it's going to be even more fun. Uh, but I don't know, man. Several of them are going to play for a paycheck. You know, the last 11 games, you guys are 9-2. and two. Just the, the strikeout average now compared to, you know, a month or five, six weeks ago, it's definitely gone down. I know that aggressive approach you guys love to have. It seems like there's not as many strikeouts now, and that's kind of where I was going with the question in terms of offensive identity. But naturally, like you said, these guys are just, you know, Hopefully they're still trending upward by the time they leave the program and move on to whatever's next in life, whether that be off the diamond or on the diamond. No doubt. You know, there's you know, when we when we fill up the strike zone, when we limit mistakes defensively, and when we just put the ball in play, I think everyone has seen that this team can be very suffocating to our opponent. And that's what we've got to work to do every game. Final question, Cajun baseball related. Uh, you don't have a midweek game this week. I know how much you love to play. You wish you could play every day. Uh, the anticipation of preparing for South Alabama, do you just spend that time without a midweek game extra prep? Do you just go back to basics? Do you do you get away from the game one night and you know go watch Top Gun for the thousandth time? What does Matt Deggs do when he has to wait a whole week and, uh, until there's another weekend series? Me personally? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm at the house right now. I'm going to hang out with Kathy for a little while. And we've got five different media things today. Uh, so we'll we'll knock that out. Uh, I'll get up to the office at some point and hang out with the guys and see what's shaking there. Probably work out. 
come back home, um, get ready to go to Pete's, not Pete's out with Jay. I'm going to get up early tomorrow. I'm going to get to the office and uh, I'm going to start watching video on South and, you know, thinking about practice. We'll have a good inner squad tomorrow. Uh, and then Wednesday will be something light and crisp and uh, get ready to get on the bus and, and head to Mobile on Thursday. Uh, there'll be some family time in there. Be, you know, be a good week. You know, I, I talked to, to Billy Napier a good bit during football season, and I wouldn't describe the personality of you guys as similar, but I would say in terms of – I would say you guys are both very habitual. How I mean, in terms of structure, organization, and the schedule, I know you like things a very certain way. Now, it doesn't always play out like that in baseball with weather and whatnot, but schedule in terms of your approach to coaching, I mean, how, how vital is that to just your way of life in general, Coach? Oh, I've got to be in a rock solid routine. Got to look. There's no successful person, no matter what, no matter what they do, that's not in a great routine. There's, there's no CEOs that wake up and go, "Dang, I wonder what I can do today." <laughs> Everything's mapped out, and I hate deviating from a routine. So whenever they have to push games back, you get it, but you're like, this, oh, it's the worst. this, this is awful. This it's is awful. the worst. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be in a baseball. So routine. And the sooner you can get on a serious note, seriously, it's, it's like having a child, right? And what's the first thing moms do with a newborn? They get them on a routine. And just throughout their life, they're in a routine, routine, routine. And it's no different with a unit or a team. Uh, you set a great routine. And then we work to master that routine. And then when you're apart from the team, you've got to have a great personal routine. And that's all part of being successful, being a winner. I know media obligations as a head coach are part of that routine. Are, are there any Mondays, Coach, and you can be honest, you won't hurt my feelings, where you're like, you know what, I really don't want to talk to Scott this morning. <laughs> it's okay. You won't hurt my feelings. Uh, no, I actually look forward to talking to you, and, I, and you know I would tell you the truth. Yep, I do. That's why I asked. Not afraid to hear the truth. Coach Matt Deggs has been our guest. Always appreciate you taking the time, Coach. You uh, got it, Scotty. Enjoy the week of preparation. We'll be listening tonight for Pete's. Have a great day. That is Rage Occasion Ed Baseball Coach Matt Deggs. We'll do a little bang your head from Quiet Riot to uh, send him out on his next duty for his daily routine. Coming up next on the Great Scott Show, the Masters. Recap. The good stories. And the boring ones? Zion had a nice father-son moment on Monday night. Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor's beef is now impacting some of the youth here in Lafayette in the greater area. I'll explain. Remember that referee that collapsed during the Final Four? Update on him. Don't go anywhere. It's ESP at 1420.com.
ESPN1420.com. Welcome back in to the great Scott show, the great sports callers open think tank. I got to, I got to thank Jay, one of our listeners for sending me uh, a clip that I had not seen or heard yet. Uh, Mikhail Bridges for the Charlotte Hornets had a, a emphatic dunk in a game. I, I, I think I said we're playing the Hawks over the weekend. And the Homer call from the Hornets announcer was, uh, well, it was something. Cody Zeller offensive rebound. Bridges. Oh, my God. Oh, what? what in Lickie? A thunderbolt from Bridges. Oh, my word. The filthiest of the filthy. I mean, that, that, I get the WrestleMania was this week, and that truly just felt like a wrestling call. <laughs> Homer call of the week for sure. That was something. That was something. Phone lines are open for you 269 1077, 269 1077. Hey, remember that referee who collapsed during the NCAA tournament? He did an interview with the Indianapolis Star. Burt Smith is his name, longtime NCAA official. And it turned out that he went, you know, he woke up in the hospital and they did some tests. And two days later, they found out that he had a blood clot in his lung. And had it not been treated, he would have died. But he got blood thinners, dissolved the clot, and he said, look, the experience gave me a new, new look on life. And had he not been, you know, calling the game, he might have been at home. He might not have been running, might not have been as active, and he might not have passed out. And it happened during, it, was, it wasn't a Final Four game, excuse me, it was the Elite Eight game between Gonzaga and USC. And a terrifying incident, man. But it's good to hear that he's okay. But it's a reminder, man. Positive vibes. Live each day. You don't know when that moment might come calling. Don't get hung up on anything. There's something you need to say, something you need to hear, someone you need to talk to. Do it. Need to tell someone you love them, haven't done it in a while, do it. Enjoy each moment, man. Took my son to his first Pelicans game Friday night. That was great. Didn't know if he was going to want to leave after five minutes. He wanted to stay for the whole thing. Enjoyed every second of it. Had a blast. We got in the car after the game to go back to where we were staying. He said, Dad, I wish we had a robot that knew everything. And I said, oh, okay, why? Because we could get Zion's number, and I could call him and see if he wants to just come over and play sometime. <laughs> I love seeing sports through the eyes of just a young child and how they view it, how they see it. It's a reminder of, how many of us grew to love sports in the first place? Don't get too cynical, man. Enjoy the moments. I enjoyed the Masters. I thought uh, I thought Hideki Matsuyama was a great story. I think having uh, you know the first champion who was born in an Asian country, the first Japanese golfer to ever win a Masters, was a great story. I thought that I related to him very much when he was asked. What did you do during the 77-minute weather delay on Saturday? And he said he just hung out in his car and looked at his cell phone for an hour. Yep. Sounds about right. 
And and I thought that yesterday, you know, some of the drama was missing that you may, might crave on a Sunday during the Masters as far as who's going to get this green jacket. There was like maybe 10 seconds of we could see something here. And then Xander, Xander Schaffel, he just, I butcher his last name every time. But he, he, he gets up. Matsuyama is suddenly only a few strokes ahead, and here comes Xander to the 16th tee. And uh, he had just carted four straight birdies, just two strokes behind, three holes left to play. He got to make a big swing, and then first tee shot in the water. Second, smoked it over the green, and that was it. It was very short-lived. It was, you know, that big drama of, is someone going to choke? Is someone going to come back? Is some, it just it wasn't there. You didn't have the the really big names late. You had some guys that, frankly, not a lot of casual sports fans, casual golf fans knew a lot about that were in the running. Spieth, you know, I mean, he, he never – okay. It was, oh, could he finish in the top three maybe? That would be cool. But it wasn't like – and you knew you know, Spieth is a name that the casual sports fan would know. But, again, you never felt like it was a race to see who was going to get first. Hideki was just great. He was just great. And, you know, Dustin Johnson not making the cut and having to hang around for a few extra days just to put a jacket on, that's tough. I guess he just ate a lot of pimento cheese. But every Masters features, I think, good storylines, right? The triumph of the winner, what ifs, all that other stuff. But you didn't have as many of those this time. It just kind of felt like Matsuyama's and Zelatoris, a young guy playing in his first Masters on the tour ever. Surprising folks. He didn't have quite as many storylines. I mean, comparing Zelatoris and his look to Happy Gilmore's caddy in a movie that was released before he was even born, that was fun with the memes, but, you know. Patrick Reed wearing a, a CBD hat, a hat for a CBD company. You know his wife doesn't let him take CBDs. Brooks Kepka not making the cut, playing a hurt. It just it. You could you could you could find storylines. You can always find them at the Masters, but this was Matsuyama's story, and I thought it was a great story. I was happy for him. I love the green jacket ceremony. Love it. Love it. ESPN fourteen twenty and Doc. Talk college baseball and softball. LSU just missed out on the sweep yesterday against Kentucky. Boy, they could have used it too. In baseball, I'm not a Braves fan, but Ronald Acuna Jr., holy cow, is that guy exciting. And by the way, the Phillies did not touch the bag. Sorry, guys. I don't like Philly, but Braves got hosed in that one. Jacob DeGrom, you don't want to hear me complain about how great he is but never gets run support because that is a tired and true story. So let me tell you about the latest beef between Lafayette's own Dustin the Diamond Poirier and Conor McGregor. You can read more about this as well over at ESPN1420.com and the ESPN 1420 app. If you remember, Poirier and McGregor, prior to their fight in January, it began as some jarring on social media back and forth about having an exhibition and McGregor was going to donate money to charity, and he maintained throughout the the, the buildup to the fight once it was going to be sanctioned and, and fought 
under the umbrella of the USC, that he was going to make do and come through on his $500,000 promise, a donation of half a million dollars to the Good Fight Foundation. And the Good Fight Foundation, which McGregor, you know, his ultimate dream is to have a, a fight gym here in the greater Lafayette area where the youth can go to as an outlet, as a safe haven. You said, you know, participation and a lot of the other things would be due in terms, would be judged on improving grades and GPA, but really this vision to just make a difference here in this community. And Poirier has used his platform and his fight career to elevate the Good Fight Foundation. You know, his philanthropic efforts are big, and not just here in Lafayette. I mean, the guy helped, that that foundation helped repair a ruined water supply in an orphanage at a school in Uganda. Okay? He, he attaches charity goals to each of his fights, building a playground for special needs children, supplying backpacks for more than 500 school children, providing transportation and tutoring for the struggling youth through the Boys and Girls Club of Acadiana right here. He wants to build a gym and wants to offer free training to youth in the area. Conor McGregor is worth $150 million. And that was prior to his stake in proper number 12 whiskey. So who knows how much it's worth now, but that that worth right there of just proper number 12 whiskey is worth over $300 million. My point is $500,000 is a whole lot of money, but for Conor McGregor, he can do it. He has it. And after McGregor got knocked out by Poirier in January, you may recall seeing a video of Dustin's wife walking back into into Connor's locker room when she was allowed to and thanking him for the donation. It was a great moment. I mean, look, MMA, the Octagon, UFC, obviously it's a brutal sport. It is predicated on violence. But the charity side of it, the difference that it can make is a beautiful thing, and yet Dustin Poirier started last night stating that McGregor has not followed through on his promise, on his donation. said, oh, you predict you're going to knock me out? That's a fun prediction. You also predicted a donation to my foundation, and you and your team stopped responding after the fight. McGregor responded, a donation, not a debt. We've been awaiting the plans for the money that never came. I do with all my donations. Nowhere it's going dot for dot. Otherwise, it goes walking, as is the case with a lot of these foundations. You took the McG over the belt shows I was right. Poirier said, 100% never a debt. You offered, we accepted. And like I said, your team never responded to our emails regarding the process of where funds would be put to work. July 10th, you will taste defeat yet again. Now, some suggested that this was just some fabricated confrontation. Of course, people got in the mention saying, oh, they're just trying to drum up stuff for the fight. I mean, we saw his wife thank him. They definitely got the donation, which Dustin responded, no, we thanked him because his team reached out fight week to initiate the process and then ghosted us the last two months after the fight. So we've reached out three times. And it sounds like Dustin's only just almost accepted that it's not going to happen at this point, the way he's tweeting about it. I get that you need storylines and fights. But this withholding half a million dollars that can make the difference 
in people's lives is not a good way to do it. Find another way, if that's what McGregor's doing. Be a man of your word. You said it enough. I don't, I don't mess around with that. Don't mess around with it. A man without his word is nothing. Ten minutes to nine. ESPN 1420, ESPN1420.com, and the ESPN 1420 app. If you're listening on the stream via the Listen Live player, it is brought to you by Champagne's Market in the Oil Center. Champagne's going the extra mile. One more thing to touch on. Didn't get into any NFL draft today, but we'll do it briefly here as we wrap it up. I got an email from a listener over the weekend, Clark. It says, wide receiver or else was the subject line. Let me read it to you here. Scott, I hope you're having a nice weekend. I can't wait for the NFL draft. It's only a few weeks away. And I keep telling myself the Saints have to drive, draft a wide receiver or else. There's a giant gaping hole there. I see playmakers in this draft. Do you think they move up to take one of the top-tier wide receivers like a Devontae Smith or a Jamar Chase? We can only hope. My fingers are crossed. What are your thoughts? Clark, thanks for the email. My thoughts are this. If they give up draft capital to move up in the draft to take a wide receiver, I'll probably throw up. I'll probably throw up. Drafting wide receivers in the first round, uh, it's not a great history with the Saints, not a great history in terms of the NFL. I, 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 yes, they do. They, they do need help at receiver, absolutely. But they also need a lot of help at linebacker. They also need a lot of help at cornerback. And your cap situation, you don't want to be giving up draft capital. You need to hit on draft picks and giving up more draft picks to move up and take a guy that, yes, I, I guess Devontae Smith and Jamar Chase, they'll probably be good pros. But I, you know. One skipped his junior season, had great numbers as a sophomore, had a great pro day, first-round prospect. And then you got Smith, who's you know from just outside of New Orleans, went to Bama, won a Heisman, did incredible things. But I just, I, I no, no, no. You got to get your quarterback situation cemented before you really know how good you've got a lot of money invested in Michael Thomas. And then after those two guys who are going to be really high draft picks, you know, you might not have another receiver taken in the first round. Elijah Moore out of Ole Miss might fall to 28. You want to take him at 28 overall? Guys, really raw. 2 2 Atwell of Louisville? He might go in the third round. Jalen Waddell, Terrence Marshall Jr., you know these names because you've watched these teams play, but I I just, no. Stay away from wide receiver in the first round, please. Sorry, Clark, I can't agree with you there. Please. BPA, what if the best player available is a receiver? Okay. I guess they'll do it. That's what history says. 
but I don't think their BPA on the board at 28 overall is going to be a receiver, and I don't think they're going to give up the amount of capital it would take to move up in the draft to take a Chase or a Smith. I don't. 28's a good spot to be if you get a difference maker. You got a first-round pick that hopefully starts right away, and you've got them at controlled cost for five years. Getting a, a guy in the first round and having that extra year of control cost, if you want it, your number five of a rookie deal is huge. And if it's a guy that's taken in the back five instead of the top back five of the first round instead of the top five in the first round, the difference in salary in year number five is gigantic. You hit on a late first round pick, that is as valuable a commodity as there is in the NFL. The only thing that might be more valuable is having a great starting quarterback on a rookie contract of any kind. Because if you have a great starting quarterback that's not on a rookie contract, chances are they are taking up a ton of your cap. But you get a great player in the latter part of the first round, you've got him in control. Brian Ramchick's value has been enormous. Enormous for the Saints. And had he gone one pick later, he would have had to have a brand new contract right now because his rookie contract would have run out. He would have been a restricted free agent or a free agent. They might have franchise tagged him, and they wouldn't have been able to do it to Marcus Williams. But because he was drafted to 32 by the Saints and not 33 by the Saints, now you got him at control cost for another year. That's going to do it for the Great Scott Show. Thanks to Rage Cajun softball coach Jerry Glasgow, Rage Cajun baseball coach Matt Deggs. Thanks to all of you for listening. Steve Peliquin is going to be out for a few days. Steve's mother passed away. All you guys, please keep him in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, Lynn Burton. Lyndon, you hear him in the afternoons with Norm. He'll be filling in the next two mornings on Beyond the Game. And that begins next right here. It's ESPN 1420, ESPN1420.com, and the ESPN 1420 app. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow.